Hi. Hello. Hello. Hello, everyone. How you doing? So good. Welcome back to the Wine About Birth podcast. We are three birth professionals. And best friends. And we're here to talk about what it's really like to live in the world of birth. It's not all glitter and rainbows. Or as we like to say, it's a lot more shit than giggles. I'm Kim Haynes, midwife at a very busy birth center. (laughs) I'm Meredith Routh, also midwife at a very busy birth center called Linden Tree Midwifery. And I'm Jess McKee. I'm a doula for clients in and out of the hospital and also a birth assistant with you guys at our very busy birth center (laughs) and out of hospital practice. (laughs) (laughs) And we also have a guest today that we are very excited about. You want to introduce yourself? I would love to. I am Katherine Haynes and I am the health equity manager with the Virginia Interface Center for Public Policy and also a PUSH Coalition uh, member. Awesome. Awesome. Amazing. Welcome. And for the record, we are not related. That's as far it. as I know. But, but we, we do have the same be. last name. How far back have y'all gone? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm married into the Haynes family, so there is a possibility, maybe, that your person and my person are somehow related. I don't know. So it's been like a month since we've had an episode. We took a holiday. <laughs> we took a holiday break. <laughs> expected yeah um and a lot went on well not actually a lot went on since then we had a couple births me and meredith had the great honor the great honor of having a car birth when it was our first car birth ever yeah right it was exciting jumper cables were involved and super fun exciting super fun i got to like run back and forth really fast that was my exercise for the week i'm so grateful (laughs) nobody in the gym came out because i was full of just screaming at you you would have had like a whole audience (laughs) yeah it was interesting nothing to do with it i haven't been to a birth in two and a half months your time is coming my love it's the longest time i've ever gone actually yeah, that it's is been a long time. Amazing. I know you're getting so many things done. Um, but yeah, New Year's was and Christmas were good. They were pretty chill. We sat around. Me and Kim sat around and played cards for New Year's, and um, that was about it. Uh, it's been pretty. Mm-hmm. Kim and I both tackled house projects, which is one of the reasons I think we're good friends. Is that we give each other permission to disappear for a week and just do house. <laughs> and even if we don't get permission, we do it anyway. Yeah. My entire family came to visit for some of them were there for 10 days, some for a week. And Brian was here for a month and it's just been, mm-hmm. it was amazing. And I guess eventually I'll go back to birthing. <laughs> yes, eventually. you will. At some point. It's you like will. pregnancy. Maybe. No one's been pregnant forever. You will not be not attending births forever. So today we are talking about something that's super, super, super important. Um, there is a bill that is trying to be passed called the Unconscious Bias Bill. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, I would love to. Uh, so the bill that the Push Coalition um, is working on and the Push Coalition is a, a group of organizations um, that is working to uh, address uh, racial disparities um, and maternal mortality um, and just uh, maternal mortality um, in general, um, but starting with racial disparities. And uh, this bill would be an unconscious bias training mandate uh, for medical professionals that are licensed by the Board of Nursing and the Board of Medicine. And uh, not all the bill numbers are out right now, um, but the language that we've been working on um, is encompassed in uh, Senate Bill 35, and that is uh, Senator Locke's bill. So there will be okay. a c- companion bill 
in the house. Uh, the number should be assigned uh, tonight, we think. Cool. And let's talk a little bit about what unconscious bias is because we've talked about it a bit on our podcast and we've wanted to do an episode about it for a long time. Um, basically, all the studies are clear that there is a difference between outcomes for people of color or marginalized subsets of the population that their birth outcomes are not as good. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Um, yes. So um, there is starting with some of the numbers in uh, Virginia, we have been uh, tracking maternal mortality um, for a number of years. And since we have been tracking it, um, black women um, have experienced uh, higher rates of maternal uh, mortality than their white counterparts. Um, and the the problem is increasing, uh, not decreasing. Um, it's gotten worse in the, like the last five years, correct? Is that like what the research is showing that like since 2018, the numbers are is that's when the numbers started increasing especially quickly? Well, the report um, is based in uh, it's a three year report. Okay. Um, so if you look at the last three years, uh, basically the maternal mortality rates have basically uh, doubled. Wow. Unbelievable. And it's 2024 in America. Yeah. That's insane. And to the fact me. that like this is something that people are pushing back on. Right. Like the fact that this isn't just like a given like there's clearly a need for this. There's people mm -hmm. who are fighting this bill and trying not to let it get through is crazy to me. And I think um, part of it is, is people think that maybe uh, you can explain the difference away by another factor. But what the research shows is um, that when you uh, take away educational differences, um, when you take away uh, income differences, uh, black women still die at rates that are higher than white women. So mm -hmm. there has to be another factor. And like you said, it's kind of... Uh, the research is now pretty clear um, that it, it is bias. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting, the name of the bill, because I think part of the reason why there is so much, and I'm not sure of all the reasons, but fight back is that most people don't want to recognize that they do have some kind of bias that they could be contributing to this problem because most people want to be able to say like, no, I treat all of my patients the same regardless of culture or color. Um, when we know that that's just not true, but a lot of the times it is done unconsciously. Like we don't even realize that we have these biases inside of us. And we talked a little bit before the podcast even started about how when we were having kids, we didn't realize how many biases we had, whether it came towards breastfeeding and home birthing or that like, this is the way it has to be and this is the best and this is what everyone needs to do. And you don't see that you have those biases until the curtains pulled back and you finally see them. And so that's happening a lot in healthcare. I feel like it's just like, it's not that, and, and there might be times when people are purposely doing it or healthcare providers are purposely doing it. But for the most part, I feel like it's something that's done unconsciously that it just happens because they don't understand what they're doing that's contributing to this problem. Yeah, no, I would agree. And, and I think it's fun to, you know, kind of uh, peel back some of the stories if you mm -hmm. think um, of a bias that you might have. And that's, you know, how do you uh, tackle bias? Um, yeah. You can do training where you uh, start to uh, look at yourself and explore where your biases come from. Um, and I remember one story, and this is not birth related, but it's, it's probably the first story that I 
I heard someone unpack their bias and uh, it was in Chicago um, and an elderly woman uh, realized that she uh, thought that uh, people who uh, were black um, uh, were not as uh, clean as people who were white mm-hmm. and in unpacking that bias she remembered being a small girl and riding uh, the train to the south side of Chicago and she would see all of the, the trash cans um, overflowing with trash and uh, what she didn't know um, is that the trash was not being picked up in certain neighborhoods, in African-American neighborhoods. So in her mind as a small child, she made this association, um, but she didn't know the story. And once she learned um, you know, where that bias came from and she learned the, you know, the horrible story, which is that uh, trash was not being picked up in African-American neighborhoods, and so they, there was no choice, um, then she was able to say, oh, wow, and let that bias mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. And there's so many, you know, I can tell verse stories about. Oh, there's yeah. countless, of, countless of them. And we live in the Shenandoah Valley, so when it comes to race and culture, I feel like we are just saturated with that kind of bias. And they're so confused. There's a lot of people, and I was the same way. Like, I, it's, it's a cultural unawareness, really, across the board. And it's fun to get to know what we're doing to perpetuate that. Mm-hmm. But then it's hard because how do we help to stop perpetuating yeah. that? And I think this bill is going to be like discussing this is going to be helpful. I, th- I feel like there's just like so many layers though, because unpacking your own bias is such a personal journey. Like people do trainings, right? They just like want to walk into their hour long training and learn the techniques they're supposed to follow to like, have good aseptic technique or whatever but like this is going to have to be like a way more personal journey for people to unpack their bias and so I feel like it's just going to be an ongoing process as well of like creating a culture of normalcy of like being vulnerable and really being honest with yourself about your biases because unpacking so many unpacking biases is not comfortable like it's very it's it can be painful like we like our confirmation biases we like when the people around us tell us that we're right and that our opinions uh, are right. And it's like, okay, we know everything about the world and we're right about everything. When somebody takes something that and points it out to you, people don't like that. Like it, it actually causes like a reaction inside of our body where it's like, whoa, I feel like I'm being attacked. Um, And so that's why it's so hard to really like, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the, um, things you've come against while trying to start this bill or get this bill passed or anything like that? Um, well, what I have heard from some of our legislators um, is that kind of that confirmation bias, right? If you live in a community um, where, you know, maybe everybody looks like you, um, then you might not think that racial bias is, is a real thing, right? Um, often we learn about bias, like from, you know, the story I shared through, through a story and somebody, you know, making us question, you know, did you know that the trash cans were there because they weren't being, you know, picked up? Um, so if, if you don't have the chance to encounter somebody, um, who, uh, has, you know, the other part of the story, um, then, um, then it's harder to, to, to change. And so we have been asked to, to share, um, to share stories. And that's, I'm excited a little later on, we're going to have, um, a friend of mine who's been involved in this work join us on the call um, 
and uh, certainly she has been very braved to share stories yeah. um, so that people understand um, that racial bias is is a real thing. You, you might not have a friend um, who is African American and has shared a story, so maybe it seems unfamiliar to you, um, but uh, it is absolutely a real thing and I, I know that you know K- Kenda um, will say that she hears stories of bias uh, mm-hmm. every day because people trust her um, yeah and and we'll share the stories yeah we were supposed to have another guest today um, Kendo is going to be here but we had so much of storm warnings and ice and sleet and an actual and sleet, an actual and sleet and oh. rain and flooding and every reason I want to move to Florida occurred all at once <laughs> yes um, and we were so thankful that you still made the journey out here. <laughs> Three hours. Well, my, husband, <laughs> my husband's from Chicago, so I learned um, <laughs> many years ago uh, that to not use, uh, you know, to be able to drive in all weather. So say he probably would have given uh, you a really hard time. He would have given me a hard time. <laughs> and also being a midwife, right? I used yeah. to be. Oh, yeah. Um, I used to be yeah. a midwife. I used to be a certified professional midwife. Um, and I, you know, if there was snow starting, you went you to gotta the get out there. So, yeah. yeah. You have to. Yeah. I would love to hear more. Like, I know you've touched on like some of the history of this bill, but like, what's been the process up to this point with this? Like, when did it, who was like the drivers behind it? Like, how long is it that y'all been working on it? And some of the, I mean, I know you mentioned that it's like they have, people would have to take a class. Um, but let's talk a little bit about more about like what the bill actually is and what it's trying to do and. Um, well, the history th- thing, it's an important um, piece to, to mention. So it was in 2019, uh, Dora Muhammad, um, who worked for the Virginia Interface Center, um, started the PUSH Coalition, which is the, the coalition that is bringing everybody together uh, to work on this bill. Um, and it was because in 2019, I, I think that's where there was a lot more press um, on uh, maternal mortality and the racial disparity in maternal mortality. Um and uh, it always takes a number of years, as you know, from the medication bill. Yay. So glad that passed. Yay. <laughs> um, um, to, to pass a bill. Um, and so um, in the, the first year, I want to say that there, were, there was a study to study the issue. And there is actually um, a report um, that is uh, coming out um, from uh, and we, there are a lot of task force in government um, and it's. I never remember all their names, but it is a maternal uh, health task force, and uh, they're going to make the recommendation um, that uh, there is unconscious bias training and that it is mandatory. Um, So that's a really important part of the process. It takes longer than you would expect, but when there is a study that leads to a committee that leads to a recommendation, then that gives support for your bill. So we are in the strongest place ever because this report is coming out and I've been told that it, the recommendation is um, we need this unconscious bias training. Nice. Um, so What's that's the timeline why. for that coming out? Um, I was told any, any time. So okay. we, we hope, um, you know, right around as the session is starting so that we yeah. can share the report with legislators and say, look, this, um, and there were a number of groups on the task force. I really yep. did bring everybody in. Kenda, um, uh, Sutton from Breath and Color RVA, um, was on that task force, you know, the Virginia Hospital Association, um, uh, the insurance folks health plan, everybody came together, um, uh, to, to do, to do this. We love when that happens. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So the session actually opens tomorrow, which we're, I'll be releasing this tomorrow. So today. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So the next couple months are going to be crazy for you guys, I'm guessing, right? <laughs> yes. Because we, uh, even though, th- you know, this year um, is different because we do have this report coming out um, this year, something that is also different um, is that we have a, a patron um, in both the House and Senate. We have a Democrat patron and then we have a, a co-patron signing on um, which a Republican in the House and Senate. Nice. So in the mm-hmm. in the House, um, uh, Delegate Cliff Hayes is leading this bill and Delegate Carrie Coiner is signing on. And then in the Senate, um, Senator uh, Locke is uh, leading this effort. And she also led the mm-hmm. bill uh, last year. Um, and uh, Senator-elect Chris Head uh, will be joining um, the efforts. So is that fairly uncommon to have support from both parties? Like, is that like a pretty big one for y'all to like open the door? Yeah, I am very excited. I think it can be more common to have, you know, a Republican in one house and a a Democrat in another. It is less common to have um, both a Democrat and a Republican in both houses. Um, Mm -hmm. You you call that uh, bicameral bipartisanship. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that was really important to this coalition because uh, it says that really talking about racism, um, addressing racism should not be a partisan thing. So, yeah, we are very excited Um, about that I think it's hard to talk about especially in this podcast talk about what this bill means without telling some stories that we have heard um I know that you said you were listening to an episode of ours um where we were talking about because this doesn't just cover bias for African Americans you you want to speak a little bit to that when you were listening to our podcast about like hearing that birth story and how that has to do with like this bill and why you wanted to come on this platform? Yes. Um, so yeah, th- this bill we are starting um, uh, with a uh, racial bias um, because uh, that does lead more swiftly to uh, mortality, um, right? It just like if you were going to talk about different cancers, um, you would want to not just talk about breast cancer, but colon cancer and lung mm-hmm. cancer as the top, right? So we start with the, the bias that causes the most harm. Um, but certainly uh, there are many biases that cause uh, harm and should also be uh, touched on. Um, so one is um, the, the bias that is linked to, uh, to, to culture and, and not understanding um, that different cultures have, uh, you know, different um, ways of expressing, um, you know, their needs. Um, a culture uh, might be, you know, what what I, um, uh, a lot of my friends in the uh, Spanish-speaking community have shared with me um, is that uh, a Spanish-speaking woman um, giving birth might be less likely to, to speak up and say, mm-hmm. uh, no, stop. Um, and certainly your, your story um, uh, really spoke of that I remember you told a story of a a Spanish-speaking woman who was giving birth and did not speak any English and there was no translator uh, present Ah, yes that story yep yep and um, and so it would be important to to have cultural competency and and recognize um, you know what a vaginal birth might mean to her Um, but what I remember um, happening uh, was the doctor said uh, 
the the woman was pushing out her baby and the doctor said i don't do v-backs which would be a vaginal birth after cesarean mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and push the baby back up inside which is extremely dangerous her, and horrific as a mom who's given birth yeah. four mm-hmm. times i cannot imagine that happening um and Zevinelli maneuver Right? Did I say that right? I was just putting that in our positive procedures. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole maneuver for that. Wow. Yeah. Is it named after an old white man? Probably. I mean, most definitely. <laughs> we should look that up during our break and see well, if it is. I don't know. Most of the good, awesome things are named after white people, so I'd imagine that they would probably take something shitty and name it after a different culture, a different <laughs> color. But that's just a guess. Um, I think people's pride and ego gets in the way of even that, though. That's true. So go on. Yes. Um, but yeah, so if you have cultural uh, competency training, um, then you would make sure that there was an interpreter there because, uh, mm-hmm. maybe you don't have any experience with, um, that mom's culture. Um, and that way you have someone that can translate, um, and make sure that you are providing, um, the care that she needs and, and not, um, you know, mm-hmm. and in that situation, it sounds like that doctor in particular, it not even just culture, just didn't take into account his patient at all. It was Absolutely. just what he wanted to do. And so like, and what he was comfortable with. And so having this training in general, I mean, I feel like we all need it to look more at our, the people that are our clients or our patients that, we are recognizing their humanity because I think that the longer you do this, the easier it is to forget that. Like they just become numbers, especially if you're doing 20 births a day. It's like it can, it can happen that you don't look at that person as a person. You just look at them as you get in there, you deliver the baby, you get out. No, very good point. I think the reason I went to culture is uh, having been a Peace Corps volunteer and uh, then after the Peace Corps uh, was working in Washington, D.C. So I had a lot of friends um, who uh, were married to Peace Corps volunteers um, and were from the the country um, in which the Peace Corps volunteer had served. And uh, as I saw them, um, you know, when they went on to have children and uh, when they would have C-sections, uh, they would explain to, to me um, that they felt that they had failed because, you know, in, in, a, in a country where the vast majority of uh, birthing folks have uh, vaginal births, um, then this whole idea of having a, a C-section and not understanding why, um, it was really devastating to, to my friends. And I had never thought about that, right? What it would be like to come from a culture where um, having a vaginal birth was part of becoming a mom. Um, obviously, it's never guaranteed, but it's important to understand that your um, client might think differently than you know someone who is, you know, this is the United yeah. States. It, that it's a grieving process for yeah. them. And it's important that if it does happen, and we talk about that a lot with anybody, it's not so much what happens, it's more like knowing that it really was necessary. And that happens all the time where it's like, did it, did it actually need to be done? Did this 
whatever stopped my birth from happening the way I wanted it to was it really important and I feel like that just gets glossed over because in our culture a lot it's you know people are I mean we have a subset of people who like it's really important for them not to have cesareans but a lot of people in our culture are just like all right if you got a cesarean you got a cesarean and so it can be really easy to pass that on to all the other cultures as well but I think that that example that story in particular it, it shows an example of a provider that was purposefully using the culture to get their way because they could have waited for the interpreter, but instead they said, oh, there is no interpreter, there is no time, so I'm going to take advantage of you. So if we have these examples of providers who purposely take advantage of different cultures, different languages, then obviously the number of unintentional bias has to be there. And nothing, no one holds this person responsible. No one's accountable for these actions. The nurses are terrified to turn them in because what if they lose their job? So like this bill is so helpful on so many levels because so many people don't even feel like they can pointed out Mm -hmm. so it's hard to even see it sometimes it's a level of accountability beyond the like patients or even like co-workers Mm -hmm. so what else did you want to say you had asked what started the push for this bill Mm -hmm. um so you were saying not only racial bias but also cultural bias are there other aspects of the bill that you wanted to mention or do you feel like that's the most like the bulk of it Well, one thing um, that I was thinking about is uh, helping folks understand um, that when we have racial biases, it actually can affect white people. Um, And so when I look at the the latest report, um, the 2018-2019 report that came out on maternal mortality in Virginia, um, white women are more likely uh, to have an accidental death and an accidental death, um, the, the biggest contributor to that is an overdose, right? So white women are more likely to uh, overdose um, uh, and die. Um, but uh, black women are m- more likely to be assumed to be a drug user and are drug tested, right? So uh, a racial bias, you know, is hurts white people if we could take away color as a factor in drug abuse right and and just see the the person for whom they are um then we would have fewer white um women overdosing because we wouldn't make the assumption that because they're white um that they are not uh using drugs that assumption is so confusing to me if you look at why people are testing everyone and if they're saying that you know economically the black community is less has less money why would we not be testing the population that that supposedly has the money to afford the drugs to do like i know way more drug abusers that are white than i do any other color of the rainbow so that is so confusing to me i don't understand it it is confusing and then the implication um can be severe um for example um if you are found to be a positive um if you are black um then the chance of uh being referred to child protective services is much much higher higher. than if you are white so it, it is again um and and that is off and not helpful either so it's just learning um you know to build that relationship and build trust um with every person and uh and and meet their needs 
um, and not making an assumption. Um, I shall throw out a, a, another just because I had a, a VBAC. Um, I learned uh, a personal connection. Um, I learned uh, that the VBAC calculator um, that uh, is used in hospitals to determine the, the likelihood of you, you having a vaginal birth after cesarean, um, they used to use a black or Hispanic um, to ding you. Um, that you were less likely to have less a VBAC. Less have a VBAC, right? Um, but it wasn't your race. I'm, no, we are not surprised. Mm -hmm. um, it was chronic hypertension. So if you, you don't put race, ask, um, do you have chronic hypertension, right? Yeah. And so it's, yeah. yeah. If you're coming, at, you're, you're, you're doing this bill, I say you because you're a huge um, advocate. So it's, it's weird where they're pulling the information. So like you said, it's hypertension. It's not the color. It's not, so it's like all the research that we're basing how we practice and how we approach birth, which every baby has to be born. The information that we're utilizing isn't even accurate. Yeah. Or even just like, and that's all, this is a whole other cup, like bag of worms, can of worms or whatever. Like what is actually causing the hypertension? Because it's not just their race that's causing the hypertension. What is happening culturally or from a monetary way that could be contributing to them being more likely to have chronic hypertension. And so it's just this whole thing that like the studies, there are some studies on it, but there's not necessarily enough there to say like, how can we support these people who are at more of a risk of having chronic hypertension to help them not have chronic hypertension so that we can lower their risks um, in the first place. And that takes, again, knowing well, our your patients and symptoms, not the underlying condition. So yeah. that's like, so um, because this is how our brains work and we just go in circles. What else about what the bill addresses would you like to say or talk about? Yeah. Cause it's almost time to go to break. Yes. Um, well, I think that's pretty much it because it really is pretty straightforward. Um, mm -hmm. It's just uh, that unconscious bias training for healthcare professionals licensed by the Board of Medicine and Board of Nurse Nursing is mandated. Um, we are asking that the Board of Medicine and the Board of Nursing um, uh, come up with this training. Um, and that way, you know, the people in the healthcare profession um, are the ones who can um, identify what trainings are evidence-based. Um, we also um, have added languages here um, that uh, make sure that the numbers of folks that take the training are reported um, to the Virginia Department of Health and the Virginia Neonatal Perinatal Collaborative. Um, so there is some accountability um, and uh, that is refreshed as needed um, so that this is not just a, a check the box. So sometimes I get this. Um, people will say, well, we know that doesn't work. Um, and I'll say, well, that's because... Um, unconscious bias trainings used to be very much check the box. Um, we know uh, that when you use uh, case vignettes um, that kind of, you know, share a story unfolding and, and pause and, and give a, a chance for learning to occur. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is going on here? What could you do differently? You know, what do you think um, is going on versus what might actually be going on with a cultural understanding, for example. Um, and then, uh, well, what, now that you have this new information, what would you do differently, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of evidence-based training, not just a, right. yay, I'm a good person, I took, I took a training, I get a certificate. Mm -hmm. And that's such a good point because we, so we have to take cultural competency as midwives, you had to take it. But 
I found it ironic that the per- I was taking a cultural competency class from a white person. Not that a white person cannot teach it. They can. But I'm hoping that the resources that everyone is pulling from for the non-bias and the cultural bias and the racial bias, I really hope that they're going to be using resources from across the board and not just having one white person teach this class that is supposed to be helping us understand racial and cultural bias because as a person of color said the other day to a person who was white i find it interesting that you think you know how i as a black woman would feel given that you were white and i was like yes that is true so i'm hoping the classes the course that they come up with will have several different backgrounds of culture and race helping to contribute to the class or course that will be taught. Yes, and that's why I'm excited about having Kenda on the call um, after the break (laughs) because she um, actually has done unconscious bias training um, with hospital providers. Um, And so it's important that, um, you know, that women of color um, doing this work uh, are a part of that conversation as the training gets, yeah. Identified I was super sad that you said she had to come over a mountain because I was like, dang it. She, we need her voice in this. So we're going to figure it out how to have that happen. And I don't know what the quality is going to be, but it's really important for us that you guys hear her voice and her words and what she is saying, because she is a big part of this as well. Yep. So it's time for us to go to break. And when we come back, we are going to hopefully be having Kent, Kenda talking on the call about this um, bill that we're trying to get passed. All right, let's go to break. Cue the music. Oh, yeah. Today's sponsor for our podcast is a very important organization called Birth and Color. Birth and Color is a reproductive justice organization committed to empowering communities through culturally sensitive care. Birthing Color exists to break down systemic barriers that create disparities in maternal, reproductive, and infant health. They stand firm in their commitment to maternal and reproductive justice, ensuring that every individual has the right to equitable, compassionate, and informed care. Their work is not done until every birthing person experiences the support and empowerment they deserve on their reproductive health journeys. No matter their background or circumstance, that's their vision. For those who want to become parents, those who don't, and those who want to parent their children safely to have access to the resources they need. You can learn more today about Birth and Color and find out how you can be a part of a movement dedicated to making pregnancy and parenthood journeys vibrant and empowering for everyone at birthandcolor.org. Again, that's birthandcolor.org. Discover more about their mission, be a part of this transformative journey at birthandcolor.org and follow them on all platforms at birthandcolorrva. All right, let's go back to our episode. Welcome back from that delightful break. It was so delightful. We all got to go to the bathroom. I got to eat some guacamole. Sorry, Catherine, that you are forced to just deal with all of our shenanigans but it seems like you're also neurodiverse in a beautiful (laughs) way so you seem to be handling it pretty well (laughs) i feel right at home fantastic (laughs) listen i am of the mindset that neurodiversity is what makes the world go round because we are constantly thinking of 400 million things and doing 400 million things and we are just the masters of chaos and this is why the world continues to turn so there 
we add the flavor and color. Yeah. Yes, we are. Um, so you were mentioning before we went to the break because of all the things that it's so easy to forget when we're talking into the microphones. You were mentioning the st- some studies in the first half uh, and you wanted to add to that. Yes. Um, Meredith had mentioned uh, that mortality rates had gotten worse in the past five years. And I had mentioned that there was a, a report and it's actually a triannual, triannual so every three years. Um, and the name of the report is the Virginia Maternal Mortality Review Team Triennial Report. And the latest one out is 2018 to 2020. Um, and to put some numbers, uh, I mentioned that the mortality rate um, had doubled. It's more than doubled. Uh, in 2018, it was 37.1 deaths per 100,000. And in 2020, it was 86.6 deaths per 100,000. Wow. Mm. The other task force I wanted to mention, I had mentioned um, that's what is different this year, is that there was a a task force, and it was actually a Senate Bill 1440 uh, that called for the task force, and the name of the task force is the Maternal Health Data and Quality Measures Task Force, and that is the report that um, I have heard um, will be uh, recommending uh, that unconscious bias training uh, be mandated for healthcare professionals. I'm not going to go on a rant. However, doubled, doubled, doubled. Women more, are more having, than doubled. More than doubled. We're having to literally research and pick and choose a provider that we don't think will kill us. Is I mean, that's where I feel like we're headed right now. We're totally running backwards at full speed. Mm-hmm. And there has to be an answer to this issue. Yep. And I guess one other thing we have to remember that it's not just the women, right? Because what I love about midwives is that we think mom, baby, right? Mm-hmm. It's not mom is separate yes. and baby is separate. Yes. And so black infants are dying before their first birthday at a rate that is also almost double the rate of other babies in Virginia. Oh my wow. God. It's, there are no words. So, but I just have so much feeling growing when I hear the numbers mm-hmm. out loud because we know it's happening as midwives mm-hmm. you know it's happening but when you hear it spoken out loud it's like how is this possible so to talk more about um, how we can make that change we're going to be interviewing Kenda I'm going to let her introduce herself Herself, we're doing something a little bit different because she couldn't make it here due to the weather today um, but She's going to be talking a little bit more, and we're going to be on Zoom, actually, which is um, I do all the technology for this podcast, and I'm not very good at it, so I'm going to try my very hardest to make it sound but what sound good, but what she has to say is so important. I feel like we have to um, find a way to make that work. Um, so yeah, let's go over to that Zoom meeting with Kenda. So we are so happy to be back from our delightful little break um, and to have Kenda on Zoom here. This is something a little bit different for us. We don't typically do Zoom interviews, but we feel like what you have to say is so important that we're going to figure this out. Can you introduce yourself for us? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Kenda Sutton-L. I am the, the director and founder of Birth in Color. Very awesome. And I know that the two of you have been working together on this bill, the unconscious bias bill. Um, 
I just want to let you just like dive in and talk about what you think of this bill and why it's necessary. Sure. So the bill is so important because there's a lot of racial bias that within healthcare systems that no one likes to really talk about. Um, and so when you have someone like myself who actually trains healthcare systems and gets to see the pre and post surveys from just hospital providers um, all across the board, um, not just singled to maternal health, um, you get to realize like some of them were just taught these things in college and so that's something that we need to be thinking about too because at that time a lot of education or surrounded always separated the black body from the the non-black body um and so when you look at it from that angle it's just like what are we actually teaching the college students how do we actually change these outcomes and then when you look at the outcomes and you ask like could this have been prevented? A lot of times it can be prevented. When you survey different patients who come through, um, because I'm also a doula as well, you get to hear about, well, I told my provider this, they wasn't listening to me, or they just assumed I was a drug addict, or even beyond that is like, no, they just didn't listen, or they told me that that's completely normal during pregnancy, it's okay, um, and not really pay attention to the symptoms, when if you listen to what the patient is actually saying, they're telling you what is wrong with them and what can be changed. And so that's why the bill is so important. And it's always important to make sure that when we're thinking about these implicit bias and racial bias trainings, who is actually the creator of them? Because sometimes you have people who've never experienced any bias, but they get to be coined the person that's, oh, I invented this, or I did, I came up with the, um, like the assessment tool for um, mental health, like that included people of color. How can you create these things without the everybody's voice as a part of it? But this is one of the things that um, Zul, who's the deep that I work with CSM always talking about not just equality but equity. so there's no representation of the bodies that are creating these amazing tools um, so I'm glad that you brought that up because that was one of the questions that I had asked Catherine like I want to be sure that the people who are experiencing these situations and that have lived these moments and have been seeing this their whole life are the ones that are teaching and providing these tools for those of us that need to learn. So that thank you for bringing that part up because that is, that is such an important part of the cultural and racial awareness that we need to help with building the bridges between the disparities or away from the disparities because you're way better at teaching than I am on the things that you've experienced as a person of color. So that I think is what has been missing in so many um, suggested bills and in so many pushes for equality and equity in healthcare is we're not listening to the right people. So that's such a big part of this, I feel. Yes, I definitely agree. Um, here recently, I just learned of um, a college professor who actually um, has to go back and forth to the doctor with her own child. And she's had to like learn about advocacy education when it comes to like fighting for what her child needs. And she also has uh, someone else that she's met that's dealing with a similar issue. And these are two different races, but the one that she has met who's um, not a person of color, she actually gets appointments very, very quickly. 
Whereas the black professor has to wait like 30 to 45 days before her child can actually be seen. And when we think about like, these are college educated people, um, but they always want to blame it on, oh, lack of access or social determinants of health when those aren't always the key factors. Do you have any specific stories you would like to share with us um, that, because I feel like in our podcast, we try and show real life examples of how these issues are affecting people. Do you have any particular birth story or story you would like to share that shows why this bill is so important in real life? Yes, I do. Um, so one of my clients had went to the doctor's office and I'm going to show the point of like the whole healthcare system needs to be educated. And so she decided that she was going to pay for her services, her copay with cash. The front desk people mocked her and said, oh my gosh, she doesn't even have a debit or a credit card. Oh my gosh. And so when I addressed the office manager and the head OBs, and I told them about the situation, they were like, no, that didn't happen. I'm quite sure that didn't happen. So I said, okay. So I dressed down, I changed my hair and everything and went in there and I did the same thing, except for this time I had the camera rolling and you could actually see this taking place. And so after I took that to the office manager and the OB, I demanded that they actually be um, terminated since they didn't want to take my word for it the first time. And so it actually led to um, termination. But also when you think about, um, I've had people who go into like, even myself, I went to um, a hospital. I had been in a car accident and the emergency room was very, very busy. And the people thought I just wanted drugs. So they actually wrote me a prescription just for drugs to get me out of there. Didn't do an x-ray, didn't take blood, didn't do anything at all. And I had to stop. I took the prescriptions because I wanted proof. And then I said, y'all aren't going to give me an x-ray. You aren't going to do anything. I didn't come in here just for drugs. I'm not a drug addict. Um, I actually was just in a real life accident and I need someone to see me. And they were all like, oh my gosh, like, oh my God, we're, we're so apologetic. We're sorry. And I'm like, no, because if I was a drug addict, you just supplied me drugs. Um, and so I always like to share, um, those type of stories because even I, I always want to make sure that people realize that like, this is a thing throughout the whole healthcare system and not just like birth. But when you think about birth, I've had clients who one lady had um, a non-centimeter fibroid and the doctors did not listen and they were all on different pages when it came to her labor. And so once we got to labor and she had the baby, she was um, started hemorrhaging and they were thinking that she had tore something. And I had to keep reminding them like, no, that's the fibroid that's bleeding. Remember it's nine centimeters and they all look puzzled and lost. Like what, what are we talking about? Um, and this is the situation of like, what would have happened if she didn't have me there constantly reminding like, no, this is why she's hemorrhaging and you need to take her to surgery to like pack it and do all the things that they would do um, for someone normally to have that. And so these are the things that are happening within birth, um, whereas, you know, a black person saying something and they're just not automatically believed. 
So I definitely think that it's going to be important for everyone to like share their stories, call their legislators, say how important it is, say that they want this bill to actually be passed, um, because that's one going to that's the key factor here. Um, but, you know, say, for instance, this bill is successful and it does pass over. Um, we need to look at how we can create more access to to midwives and how they can actually be paid um, fairly, how doulas can actually be paid fairly, um, how there shouldn't be such a difference between CNMs and CPMs, both are midwives, um, and try to get the insurance companies and Medicaid all on the same page um, so that there's always access to midwifery care. Um, because that's a big, a big um, barrier also for midwives is even when midwives that are in the hospital, they still have to fight up against nurses um, to effectively do their job. And so that's one of the things that Birth and Color is working on this year is to help change some of those narratives and like create the ultimate birth team and show how a birth team should actually be cohesive and collaborative care for everybody. That would be amazing. We need that across the board. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really hard when you have midwives fighting midwives. And then it's really hard to fight for um, to pay and insurance to cover when those of us who are fighting for similar outcomes are fighting against each other more than we're fighting against the system. Down. So if you could all come together on this, that would help a lot. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to speak a little bit more to what you said about like fair compensation across the board, because I do feel like out of hospital care and doulas have been seen as something that only wealthy people can afford because it's not accessible to people. Um, but then it's also seen it's like for us to work and you know pay for our food and pay for the roof over our head, like. The amount of compensation that the, the insurance companies are willing to pay out of hospital is just it's is not in line with the amount of work that is being done and so it makes it puts everybody in a situation because we want everybody to have that choice and it's just not possible right now with the current politics I definitely agree with you on that. And so when you look at states like California and you look at how those providers are actually compensated, it's on a total different level. Like they have so much respect for their providers. Um, Their doulas alone, it just got passed. They're, they get paid $3,000 uh, for births. So if their doulas are getting paid $3,000, you know, their upper... Um, the upper channels are actually getting paid, you know, what their worth is also. And I think that's something that we need to really um, hold Virginia accountable to is like, you know, what are our tax dollars really going to if we can't compensate the healthcare providers who are making the change in outcomes, who are putting Virginia on the map? What can we actually do about that? Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, one thing that I like to point out while recognizing that hospital births that is where all the high-risk women are going, mm -hmm. and I know that. But if you just look at statistics for out-of-hospital providers compared to our current across not only Virginia, but the United States, it's incomparable. I mean, it's we our statistics, I know for Linden Tree, are amazing. And it's because we're doing it. person gets an hour every time we talk, so we pick up on things. 
that they don't have time to pick up in a five-minute time span. So our statistics are reflecting the care that we're getting. So it just kind of goes beyond me as to why that's not recognized as something that would be put into the institution because we are providing the care that women need to stay safe. Why would insurance not want to cover that? So it truly just comes down to politics and getting people on the same page because it has nothing to do with our numbers. It has nothing to do with our outcomes because if it did, no one would fight paying for an out-of-hospital birth ever, ever. And I think that the bill that everyone's been working on is going to go, it's like a step right in the right direction, at least for the state. And if Virginia can step it up and everyone around us can see, then maybe that would help step up things across the country as well. You were talking a little bit about midwifery training and I know especially amongst ourselves here and speakers personally, uh, and a, a culture of midwives is that we need more midwives and those color. And you're speaking to the point that it's really hard for um, midwifery students or dual students to find like preceptors um, that aren't biased as well. And it makes it harder for people of color to become midwives, which is so needed to help people of color who want to have midwives. Do you want to speak to that at all? Sure. Um, so what we do know is that um, when we think about midwifery and how it actually started um, and all of the things, um, it leads back to, you know, Black granny midwives. Um, and, and these were lay midwives who actually, you know, took care of their own communities. However, we are not afforded the same opportunity to be able to, to do that. For one, um, you have to have a preceptor. Um, that preceptor is really in control over all of your paperwork. Um, and so if there is any type of bias or um, anything like that, this preceptor could ultimately not give you your signed paperwork that you do already have, um, not sign off on skills. And that is something that has been happening um, constantly to where, you know, Black midwife students are just like, okay, I can't possibly keep up with this. Um, even, you know, a preceptorship is looked at as I'm doing you a favor. Um, so while birth assistants will get paid, midwifery students don't get paid. Um, and so typically, if you are a midwife student, you have to think of outside the box of ways to actually have some type of income coming in your household. Um, and so when you think about all of those factors, and then to have a, a midwife who's your preceptor, who really doesn't care, she only wants the numbers, or she only wants to use your face because you're Black. Um, so that is always one of the things that um, we've been looking at. And we've been like, okay, how do we effectively change this narrative? How do we change it to make sure that Black student midwives are comfortable um, with having different preceptors? How are we able to vet preceptors that actually are um, accommodating Black students um, in, in some type of way? Um, and that's a the reason why some people, it takes them 10, 15 years before they actually become um, a midwife. So the call to action. Yes. <laughs> I, I saw the 10 minute warning notice. Yeah. Um, so we can uh, say, say, put our emails out there. Well, one, I'll say her face under her policy. 
is having a, a lobby day. Uh, we call it Day for All People. It's January 17th, so you can look on our website and sign up. You can also email me, Catherine, at virginiainterfaithcenter.org, uh, and maybe one of our tech people can put that on the, yeah, awesome. Um, and uh, find your legislator, uh, absolutely, uh, Kendra, I think you had mentioned your email to your legislator, uh, telling them that this is important to you and we need this bill passed. Um, will go a long way. You can pass this bill. Um, Kenda, did I leave anything out uh, in terms of next action steps? Okay, Birth and Colors Advocacy Day is January 24th. Um, so if you want to support any of the bills that we are um, pushing, I believe we have a total of seven, um, feel free to visit our website, birthandcolor.org. Um, and click on advocacy and you, it tells you all the, the bills and things that we are supporting. All right. So after that amazing interview with Kenda, it is time to close out our episode. Um, do you have anything else that you want to say about this bill before we close our episode? Or you could even repeat um, some of the call to action if it wasn't clear, um, just because our connection wasn't great. But you had said a couple of other things when we took that little snippet of a break. So go ahead and... Um, yes, since you mentioned midwives coming together, I did want to share the exciting news that both the Virginia ACNM, so that's the uh, Virginia chapter of the American College of Nurse Midwives, and the Virginia Midwives Alliance, uh, which is an alliance of uh, CPMs, NCNMs, NCMs, uh, so all kinds of midwives coming together in Virginia, both endorse Senator Locke's bill, that's Senate Bill 35, and also wanted to repeat the call to action, mm -hmm. and that is uh, January 17th, Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy has our day for all people where you get to come. We schedule the visit for you and you can talk in person to your legislator at the General Assembly. Uh, look online. Uh, just Google Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy Day for All People. January 17th. Uh, it is all day. And we do provide scholarships because advocacy uh, money should never be a barrier to advocacy. You can also email me, Catherine, at VirginiaInterfaithCenter.org. And uh, I know Kenda Sutton, uh, Birth and Color, also has an advocacy day, January 24th. And she will be sharing information on that. So turn out for advocacy days. Awesome. Yeah. And awesome. talk to your legislator if you can't make it to our advocacy days. Talk to your legislator and reach out for help. Mm -hmm. If you uh, need someone to go with you, yeah. we will go with you. Let's all work together to make birth and child rearing safer for everybody. Um, it's so important. And along those lines, we wanted to put out there that um, we've wanted to do an episode for a long time about um, birth f from the viewpoint of people of color. And it's, been difficult for us to do that because number one we are white and number two it's been difficult to find people to interview who are willing to speak out on this subject for a myriad reasons um, and so what we're thinking of doing is doing an episode like we used to back in the olden day where if you want to anonymously or with your name send us an email and explain to us a story that you went through where you felt biased either in your regular medical appointments or 
when you were pregnant, giving birth or having kids and bringing them to the doctor. And that could include a racial bias or a cultural bias, just so that we can help because we have a lot of listeners and we really want them to understand where you are coming from and what the issue is. A lot of us have never experienced this before. Mm -hmm. So we really are feeling push to just make this awareness a possibility for as many people as possible from our platform. Yeah. So anyone, anywhere, if you've had situations like that, um, it, email us whineaboutbirth@gmail.com. We want to get enough together that we can do an episode from other people's point of view, the people that are experiencing this to bring awareness to it, to help make change because it's so important. We want our healthcare to be going forward and not backward. And uh, so far that has not really been happening as we saw from you mentioning what our maternal mortality rates, they're going down, not they're, they're getting worse, not better. And we need to turn that around. Yeah, because my daughter is going to be giving birth at some point in her life. And the thought of her not being safe or if I have to transfer, like this all needs to be fixed before our children are giving birth, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. Every generation seems to step down. I think that's why it goes up and down. Like I'm done having kids. So typically we step away from these. Yep. Um, but we need to step forward. Step forward and help make it safer. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we cheers everyone, Catherine? Uh, your homework is to look up your legislator and get started. It yes. starts with you. I just had to do that because I suck. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known, but I I'm going to uh, call you, Kim, and I need a report. Please do. I, who's your legislator again? Ben Klein. All right. Yeah. Ah, that was fast. Good job. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so all the right. only other thing that we have to say is for all the people out there, um, you are badasses and... Hopefully we can help make a small step in making the uh, birth world safer for everyone out there. The only other thing we have to say is cheers. Cheers. cheers.